of Samuel, chapters 7 and 8. If you'd like, if you haven't got a Bible and would like to follow the reading, there are Bibles on the back table. Feel free to go and get one. I shall be missing out a few verses, so in chapter 7, I'll be reading verses 1 to 13. Sorry, I'm not reading 1 to 13. I'm starting in the middle of 2, where we left off last week. (laughs) Then all the people of Israel turned back to the Lord. So Samuel said to all the Israelites, If you are returning to the Lord with all your hearts, then rid yourselves of the foreign gods and the Ashtoreths and commit yourself to the Lord and serve him only and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the Israelites put away their Baals and Ashtoreths and served the Lord only. Then Samuel said, Assemble all Israel at Mizpah, and I will intercede with the Lord for you. When they had assembled at Mizpah, they drew water and poured it out before the Lord. On that day they fasted, And there they confessed, We have sinned against the Lord. Now Samuel was serving as leader of Israel at Mizpah. When the Philistines heard that that Israel had assembled at Mizpah, the rulers of the Philistines came up to attack them. When the Israelites heard of it, they were afraid because of the Philistines. They said to Samuel, Do not stop crying out to the Lord our God for us, that he may rescue us from the hand of the Philistines. Then Samuel took a suckling lamb and sacrificed it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. He cried out to the Lord on Israel's behalf, and the Lord answered him. While Samuel was sacrificing the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to engage Israel in battle. But that day the Lord thundered with loud thunder against the Philistines and threw them into such a panic that they were routed before the Israelites. The men of Israel rushed out of Mizpah and pursued the Philistines, slaughtering them along the way to a point below beth Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen. He named it Ebenezer, saying, Thus far the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued, and they stopped invading Israel's territory. Throughout Samuel's lifetime, the hand of the, Philistine, the, hand of the Lord was against the Philistines. Chapter 8, verses 1 to 10. When Samuel grew old, he appointed his sons as Israel's leaders, The name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second was Abijah, and they served at Beersheba. But his sons did not follow his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain and accepted bribes and perverted justice. So all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. They said to him, You are old, and your sons do not follow your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. But when they said, Give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord. 
And the Lord told him, Listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king, as they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt unto this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are doing to you. Now listen to them, but warn them solemnly, and let them know what the king who will reign over them will claim as his rights. Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking him for a king. I'll just miss out those things and jump to verse 18. When that day comes, you will cry out for relief from the king you have chosen, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we want a king over us. Then we will be like all the other nations, with a king to lead us and to go out before us and fight our battles. When Samuel heard all that the people said, he repeated it before the Lord. The Lord answered, Listen to them and give them a king. Then Samuel said to the Israelites, Everyone go back to your own town. Thanks very much for uh, reading that. Appreciate that. Looking into a mirror can be uh, a bit of a frightening experience for some people, I'm told. I don't mind looking into a mirror and looking at the wrinkles and things. There's nothing much you can do about it, I reckon. But um, a good mirror doesn't lie, does it? No pimple, wrinkle, freckle, facial imperfection, blemish um, will be spared you when you look into a good mirror, unless it's foggy or something like that. And you, um, other people, what they do is they, um, they might use a makeup mirror to try and see what those imperfections are and then cover them over. In fact, um, I know a mother who will not venture beyond her front door until she has what she calls her face on. She's got to have her face on and then she can face the world and she'll be respectable. Well, God's word is actually like a mirror to us. James, the book of James tells us that, that you know, we behold uh, God in his word like a mirror and we need to remember what we look like. So today, I really want to hold up a mirror to us to see both what we're like, but more importantly, what God's like revealed here in these chapters. So rather than breaking up with three sort of points, I want to just go through chapters 7 and 8, highlight the flow, because 7 and 8 are a contrast. There's a significant event happening here in the history of the Bible and we need to understand that and chapter 7 sets us up to understand chapter 8 and then I want us just to stand back and to say what is this revealing about ourselves and what is it revealing about God because there's some valuable valuable lessons for us let's pray
Father, we ask that your word today will be a true mirror to us, showing us not only the ugliness of our sin, but more importantly, the beauty of our King, our Lord Jesus Christ. Hear us, give us ears to truly hear, eyes that truly see, and hearts that truly change by your grace. In Jesus we ask it. Amen. We mentioned uh, before um, that Samuel doesn't appear in those first few uh, chapters that we looked at last week. But here in chapter 7, he re-emerges on the scene by name. But he's a mature man. He's got sons. If you look at the beginning of, of chapter 8, you'll see what it says about Samuel's sons. And they were wicked men. They actually turned out like Eli's sons. Samuel had grown up under the ministry of Eli, and Eli's sons were worthless men, and it seems that basically Samuel's sons turned out the same. We know they didn't follow in his footsteps. They turned aside after dishonest gain, accepting bribes, perverting justice and it's let's face it always a heartache when children don't follow in their parents footsteps in terms of Christian faith I'm sure it was a heartache to Samuel and to his wife to see their boys grow up and not follow in their footsteps And Christian parents today sometimes have to experience that, see that, when they have a heart for the Lord, but their children just don't seem to follow. And it's hard to describe the kind of heartache that can cause in a parent's life. It cuts very deep. But we need to trace the flow here to get the point of chapter 8. So the transition here is between having a judge like Samuel and wanting a king like Saul was going to be. So after 20 years, the ark of God's presence rested in Kiriath-Jerim and under Samuel's ministry, the hearts of the people turned back to God. It took a while. 20 years. Have a look at the beginning here of chapter 7. Then all the people of Israel turned back to the Lord. That last part of verse 2. So Samuel said to all the Israelites, if you're turning, if you're returning to the Lord with all your hearts, then rid yourselves of the foreign gods. And he lists them. The Ashtoreths and the Baals. Ashtoreth was a female deity. Baal was the male equivalent deity. And it involved perverted sexual detestable practices to worship Ashtoreth and Baal. And that's what Israel had been engaged in, following the gods of the nations around them. But then they realised God opened their eyes, they turned their hearts back to the Lord, and Samuel says, if you're serious, if you're returning to the Lord with all your heart, put these things aside. So there must have been some kind of revival happen because they embraced that. They accepted that. Samuel said, Assemble all Israel at Mizpah and I will intercede for the Lord for you. And when they all assembled, 
They drew water and poured it out before the Lord, which is an unusual thing, isn't it? Drawing water and then just pouring it out. Now, we never hear of this happening anywhere else in the Bible. And there's a bit of a, we're not entirely sure what it might mean. But it seems that it probably meant that just like with fasting where you forsake your food in order to elevate God above your natural appetites, probably pouring out water was showing we are returning to the Lord even above our natural appetites. We, as much as we need water to live, we hunger and we thirst after you, O oh God, even more. And it may also have had some symbolic meaning in terms of cleansing, like pour, God pouring out his grace on his people for their cleansing and their forgiveness. But as, the interesting thing is as soon as they do this, and this, it's like an act of covenant renewal, and Samuel's leading them through this. The people's response is to pour out the water. Samuel's response is to offer a sacrifice to seal the deal to renew the covenant between God and his people. And as soon as the Philistines get wind of this, they choose that very moment to attack Israel. So you see in verses 7, 8, 9, etc., they thought, man, if, if Israel returns to the Lord with all their heart, we're done for. Our aspirations of taking over this land are done for. And so they decided to seize the moment to attack. Very similar to what happened to Israel in 1967 during Yom Kippur. They're having a feast and Israel's enemies chose that very time to attack. And it only lasted six days and Israel won a tremendous victory and, and even took territory back off the surrounding nations that attacked them. It was the same kind of thing happening here. So at this point, it's good for us perhaps to pause and just realise, remember, Ephesians 6 reminds us we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That's the real enemy. It was the Ashtoreths and Baals, the, the worship of, of false gods that motivated these Philistines, these Philistines to attack Israel. And so behind it all, there's Satan's hand. He's working. And, and we see it unfolding in terms of historical events. But James reminds us, resist the devil and he will flee from you. And that's exactly what we see Israel doing here. Samuel's in the midst, verse 10. While Samuel was offering the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to engage Israel in battle. But that day the Lord thundered with loud thunder against the Philistines and threw them into such a panic that they were routed before the Israelites. God acted in the midst of their returning to him. He said, if you return to me, I will return to you. Those who humble themselves before me, I will show myself strong to them. My hand will, will be upon them for good and not to oppress them, not for judgment, but to bless them and to build them up. And this is an exact fulfillment of 
Hannah's prayer for Samuel. You'll see in the handout sheet that that you would have received some extra verses. And you'll see 1 Samuel 2 verse 10 is listed there where we're told, this is right near the end of her prayer, she says this, It is not by strength that one prevails. Those who oppose the Lord will be broken. The Most High will thunder from heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. The Most High will thunder from heaven. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. And we're told here the Lord thundered from heaven and routed the Philistines. So Samuel's mother's prayer was coming to pass under Samuel's watch. God is acting for his people. They're returning to him with all their heart. And it's interesting when we look, we see that Samuel recognised there was something else going on that the people needed to take note of. And it's this. One victory, one battle doesn't mean you win the war. God acted decisively and it was marvellous, but he knew the hearts of the people. They needed to keep returning to the Lord. So he takes a stone and he sets it up between Mizpah and Shen, part of Samuel's circuit. He named it Ebenezer. And you'll see the NIV's footnote says, Ebenezer means stone of help. So he calls it stone of help, God's help. And he says, thus far, the Lord has helped us. To this point, God has helped us. In other words, it's reminding Israel they're returning to the Lord. And so up to that point, God, the faithful God, has been returning to them and helping them despite all their hard-heartedness over the years and rebellion under various rulers and leaders, God was proving himself faithful yet again to Israel. And we need to remind ourselves of that sort of thing too. In fact, that's why Jesus said to us, do this in remembrance of me. If you like, the Lord's Supper is our Ebenezer stone. It reminds us In this way, the Lord has helped us. He has given us a king. He has won the victory through his blood shed on the cross. This is my body broken for you. This is my blood shed for you. Never forget that. What was written above Jesus' cross? This is Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews. And so... Chapter 7 finishes on a high. The the people are turning back to God. We're told the Philistines were subdued and they stopped invading Israel's territory throughout Samuel's lifetime. The hand of the Lord was against the Philistines. The towns from Ekron to Gath that the Philistines had captured from Israel were restored to Israel. Israel delivered the neighbouring territory from the hands of the Philistines. There was peace Shalom between Israel and the Amorites. Samuel continued as Israel's leader all the days of his life. So it's summing up the effect of of Samuel's judgeship. He was their judge 
and he was leading them and it was very effective and God's hand of blessing was upon the nation. But now we come to chapter 8. And verses 1 to 5 set the scene as I mentioned before and it all comes and stems from the fact that Samuel's sons were not following in his footsteps. Notice what the elders of Israel conclude then. Verse 4 of chapter 8. So all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. Listen to what they said. Samuel, you're doing a fantastic job of leading Israel. The country is thriving under your leadership and it's experienced revival. We're so thankful to you for all you've done that we want to express our appreciation in a practical way. We know you're not getting any younger and we think you've been working too hard for too long and we'd like to reward you for all those years of dedication. We've come up with a plan, a succession plan that might help you have more time to spend with those sons of yours. Here's what we're thinking, and we'd like your blessing on it for good, for the, for the good of the whole country. Is that what they said? No. They didn't say that. Very rudely they said, you're old now, your sons don't follow your ways, so appoint a king to lead us like all the nations around us. There's Samuel standing in front of them. He's been faithful. His Nazarite hair. Remember he was a Nazarite, dedicated to God from his birth. Never to touch a dead body. Never to touch alcohol. Never to cut his hair. Always being a sign of of being dedicated to the God who gives life. The God who's better than wine. His love is better than wine. And he's standing there in front of them and he served God faithfully and they say, give us a king. We want someone else to lead us. We want a new system. They come up with a new plan. We could, I can just visualise it in terms of what happens with elections. We could put it like this. So, um, the elders were confident... Uh, This would kickstart the economy by ensuring supply, boosting housing, keeping interest rates low while at the same time creating employment, putting them on level pegging with their global competitors and chief trading partners or something like that. That's probably what lay behind their thinking. It'd be good for Israel. The whole idea upset Samuel. He's a spiritually minded man. The evidence was there for all to see. Under his leadership, Israel was thriving. Their hearts turned back to God. There was peace with their enemies. But listen to what God says to Samuel. And three times he tells Samuel to listen to the people. Verse 7, the Lord told him, listen to all that the people are saying to you. It's not you they've rejected, but they've rejected me as their king. And they have done, as they've done from this day, when I brought them up out of the land of Egypt until this day, forsaking me, serving other gods, so they are doing to you. Verse 9, now listen to them, but warn them solemnly. 
Then write down verse 22. The Lord answered, listen to them and give them a king. So I reckon that surprised Samuel. I reckon that's not quite the response he was expecting from God, saying, listen to these people. I reckon what God was doing was something really significant here. He's saying, give them what they want until it comes out their ears, until it comes back to bite them, until they realise the foolishness of what they've chosen. And then they'll learn something really important. That's the effect. That's the, the desire behind God saying to Samuel, give, give them what they want. Now, the real issue was whether the people and their leader would have hearts of love to follow God. That was really the issue. Not what the elders wanted, a change of the system of government. Because if you think about it, it wouldn't matter if they had a judge like Samuel or a prophet or a priest or a king to lead them. If their hearts were not submitted to the Lord, it wouldn't matter who was leading them, they'd keep going astray. The real issue is not the system of government, but the condition of their hearts. They would be like sheep without a shepherd, always bleating and going astray, whinging and complaining. It would be the blind leading the blind, whether it was a priest, a prophet, a king, a judge, whatever. But the interesting thing is, all along, God knew this. And this is what we need to start taking on board if we step back and look at this in terms of the mirror. Deuteronomy 17, you'll see it listed in your handout sheet. It makes provision for Israel to have a king. God's terms and conditions for a king are quite clear. They could have a king after they conquered and it conquered that promised land and taken possession of it. They must only appoint the king of God's choosing. He must be a fellow Israelite, not a foreigner. And it says two things, what the king must not do and then what the king must do. Notice what he must not do. Acquire many horses or trade with Egypt for the best horses. That's addressing the issue of power and prestige. Having a, a, a wonderful army with wonderful horses, powerful things. Horsepower. He must not acquire many wives so that his heart is not led astray. It, is, it, it addresses the sex thing. Or acquire excessive silver or gold. That addresses the money thing. Money, sex and power. That is not what a king is meant to be going for. Instead, when a king ascended the throne, listen to what he was to do. He must write out a copy of God's law for himself, dictated by one of the Levitical priests. So he can read it and obey it and revere the Lord all his days and know that he's no better than his fellow Israelites. Throughout his life, the king must consecrate himself to God. Only if he does this will he and his descendants reign a long time in Israel 
And this addressed the need for a king to rule humbly in the fear of God. Had the fear of the Lord, which is the beginning of wisdom. To turn back to the Lord and keep his heart turned to God with all his might, all his days. And so, in obedience to God, Samuel now solemnly warns Israel about the effect of having the king that they want. And it's listed there in the section that we didn't read, but you'll see he will take your sons and make them serve with his chariots and horses. Verse 11. Verse 12, verse 13. He'll take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. Verse 14. He'll take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive groves and give them to his attendants. Verse 16. Your male and female servants and the best of your cattle and donkeys he will take for his own use. Verse 17. He will take a tenth of your flocks and you yourselves will become his slaves. Verse 18. When that day comes, you will cry out for relief from the king you have chosen. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. So Samuel solemnly warned Israel, the elders of Israel, about the effect. He knew what was going to come. He had a heart after God and he could foresee this too and astonishingly the people refused to listen to Samuel no they said we want a king over us then we'll be like all the other nations with a king to lead us and go out before us and fight our battles their minds were made up and no amount of warning from a wise guy like Samuel was going to change them so God says, all right, their hearts are hard, we'll let them taste a hard lesson. Now let me give an example to you of this. When I was a young dad, God taught me a valuable lesson. Occasionally we'd been out and it actually happened to our eldest daughter. We were out one day and a child came up and just out of the blue bit our daughter. And I remember thinking, oh man, to, if, you, if you have, what kind of a family has a child like that? What, what kind of parents does that child have? And the Lord says, I'll show you, Steve, what kind of parents children like that have. Someone just like you. So another one of our daughters, and she'd grown up a little bit, we started to get reports back. Your daughter bit our child. We said, no, that wouldn't happen. Um, Our daughter, she doesn't do that sort of thing. And one day we saw it happen. Just bite, bite, (laughs) smile. And I said, oh, no, 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 no. And it's like, oh, this could not be happening. We tried all kinds of things cajoling her, threatening her, rewarding her. We, we set in place a system to try and overcome the behaviour. She would not listen to us. Nothing we did worked until we bit her. <laughs> the only way it worked. And you can imagine how we felt. 
and into it. And, see, and it was like the dawning of realisation on her face of, whoa, this is nothing to smile about. This hurts. This is not good. I reckon it's exactly like this for Israel. They were going to have to learn the hard way. There's only one way they were going to learn is when it came back to bite them. And it would bite them in such a way they'd have to realise, wow, we should have listened to Samuel. So what biting lessons are there here for us? As we stand back now, we look at these two chapters, what is it saying about us and what is it saying about God? I think there's three things we can see here quite clearly in Israel's behaviour that we don't need to be Einstein to work out applies to us as well. We can just see it in our own behaviour too. And that's the passion for substitutes. Israel had a passion for substitutes. Give us a king like all the nations around us. We want what they've got. But they already had God as their king, the real king. But they didn't value it. They didn't see it. They didn't value God. Their hearts were set on what their eyes could see. They were like Eve in the Garden of Eden. When she saw the tree was good for food, was pleasing to the eyes, a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of it and ate. And we're, we're like that. Time and time again, we, our passion for substitutes comes out. We fall headlong for earthly substitutes and miss out on the amazing love of God. We read in the Bible, it says, his love is better than wine. But it's like, just goes right over our heads. We, we don't really think that God is so good. We're told that that he's better than all the other gods. He's more powerful and he's able to deliver us. And it kind of maybe registers in our minds, but I wonder if it really registers in our hearts until we find out what other leadership is like, what failed leadership is like, what human leadership is like. Israel was going to find out what Saul's leadership was like. Even David, a man after God's own heart, would have faults and foibles. It doesn't seem to occur to us that the Bible is right. It's truth. It's God's word and nothing else can substitute for the truth of God in our lives. What do we build our identity on? Who we are in Jesus or our own desires and plans that we organise for ourselves. Our hearts miss the God-obvious truth of who he is and what he's done. We look after, we think we need a new phone or a new house, or if we only had this or if we only had that, it would really make life go swimmingly for us. But it's just a substitute. What we really need is God. And a heart surrendered to God. So the next thing we see is a deep aversion to holiness. Aversion means turning away. Uh, We we don't like it. 
We, we've got an inherent um, lack of desire for holiness. At the root of the name or the meaning of holy is, is being set apart for God. God set apart Israel from the surrounding nations to be his own. Now you see it all the time with uh, teenagers growing up, if they've grown up in a Christian home, they do not want to stand out as Christians. They do not want to be different from their peers. They, they want to dress like them, they want to act like them, they want to go where they go, do what they do, because they want to fit in. And it's, it's a very deep-seated desire within all of us and it just comes out quite obviously in those teenage years. But it, it just gets a bit more subtle as we mature. But deep down, adult believers are no different. We, we don't like not fitting in. We don't like standing out as different from the surrounding nations, from our culture, from our peers. I can remember coming home from a prayer meeting once and I had to pop in and get some petrol and um, getting petrol at Grand Central Station and the attendant came up and to serve me. I didn't realise Grand Central still had you know, people to serve you. So uh, I, that was a while ago. And uh, I, I got the petrol, and the guy said, so what have you been doing? I said, mm, not much, just had a meeting. I didn't say I'd been to a prayer meeting. Why? I just didn't want to be different. Didn't want to stand out. Didn't, didn't kind of, just didn't seem cool. I was no different from a teenager. Education may clarify, but it cannot transform a heart. Education is not the ultimate answer. Samuel told them what would happen. They wouldn't listen. Some things can only be learned the hard way. There's a huge difference between hearing truth and loving truth between hearing the gospel, the good news of Jesus, and loving Jesus. And Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. Follow in my ways. If giving us what we want is the only way to awaken us to our need for Christ, to our need for deeper sanctification, our need for growth in holiness, then God will give it to us until we realise the foolishness of what we ask for. It's also avoidable if we could pay attention to God and his word. If, we, if you know your heart is listless and only semi-committed, not really devoted to the Lord, then cry out to the God of the new covenant who's promised to put a new heart and a new spirit within you. Cry out to God and say, Lord, I'm half-hearted. I, 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 I don't want to stay like this. I don't want to just keep conforming with the world around me. It's not turning out well for me. I need you. Every hour I need you. So cry out to God for wisdom. 
And this is the, the, the third thing that shows us. We just seem to be immune to wisdom. Immune to the wisdom of God and what he's saying. We, we think we know best. And our desire to fit in, our desire for substitutes just speaks so loudly to us that we, we don't really hear the message. We kind of hear it, but it doesn't register. Now, that's, that's the bad news. That's how sin has affected us. What's the good news here? good news is God knows all this. He's made provision all along for what we need. He'd made provision for Israel. If, if they wanted a king, he says to Samuel, listen to them, give them a king, because he was going to use having a king to point them to their need of him as their king. So I think the, the real thing this shows us is Know that Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords. Know God as your king. It's easy to look at outward circumstances of life and dream up solutions, but they all miss the point. Don't settle for merely political answers or scientific solutions. Yeah, ultimately, yes, you could probably benefit from more health and diet and exercise, but what you could really benefit from is knowing God and embracing his kingship in your life, accepting him as king of kings and submitting your heart to him in a way that says, Speak, Lord, your servant is listening. I want to follow you. I want to do your will. We need to be convinced deep in our heart that God is a good and wise king and trust him. Now the final thing. God intended to show Israel that the way he conducts his leadership of his people is different from how they would. God is not a king like we think of a king. The way he operates the kingdom of God is different from how we would. And we need to understand that because if we don't understand that, it won't work out well for us. We've got to learn to submit to his wisdom and his timing or things go pear-shaped. Ponder in your handout what it says in Judges 3, 1 to 4. God knew their needs. He had a reason for the Philistines. Look what it says. These are the nations the Lord left to test all those Israelites who had not experienced any of the wars of Canaan. He did this only to teach warfare to the descendants of the Israelites who had not previous had battle experience the five rulers of the Philistines and all the Canaanites the Sidonians and the Hivites living in the Lebanon mountains from Mount Baal Hermon to Lebo Hamath they were left to test the Israelites to see whether they would obey the Lord's commands which he had given their ancestors through Moses God had a purpose for the Philistines he knew they would rise up just as Samuel is, is um, offering that sacrifice. 
Samuel was right in saying you need this Ebenezer stone. You need to remember, hitherto has the Lord helped us. Until this point, the Lord has helped us. Up until now, the Lord has helped you. So keep trusting him. Keep following him. Because the way he will work things out is very different from what you think you need. Think about this. What it says in 1 Peter 1 and verse 6. It's in the handout. You may have to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These come so that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold which perishes even though refined by fire may result in praise, glory and honour when Jesus Christ is revealed. The way God unfolds his kingdom is not to deliver us straight away from all our troubles. He knows a a granite-faced Philistine is probably exactly what we need to realise we don't have the resources to overcome ourselves. We need him to cast us back upon God with fresh dedication, fresh consecration, fresh desire, seeking after him. Lord, we need you. Every hour we need you. God wants to test our hearts and refine our faith because then we realise how precious it is what we have in him. How precious is the gospel. How precious is our saviour. More precious than gold. More wonderful than anything else, than money, sex or power. We need to submit to the wisdom of Proverbs 3, 5 and 6. Trust in the Lord. With all your heart, lean not on your own understanding. and all your ways, submit to him. He will make your paths straight. May not be in your time, may not be in your way, but he will do it. He who promised is faithful, he will do it. He's a good God, a wonderful king. Trust him. Let's pray.